You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 22nd, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Although it's not widely talked about, one of the hottest sectors in renewable power today is the corporate sector. Fortune 500 companies, especially tech companies, are buying solar and wind power and renewable energy credits at a record pace. But why would the likes of Google or Apple, or even Safeway, go to the trouble of buying green power? And how do they do it? And what role do renewable energy credits and carbon credits play in these markets? In this episode, we'll talk with Aaron Craig, Managing Director of Origin Climate, a San Francisco-based company that helps implement renewable energy and emission reduction projects to fight climate change, and helps corporate customers buy renewable energy and renewable energy credits. Aaron unravels the mystery of how virtual power purchase agreements work, how we manage balancing between wholesale markets as interstate corporate procurement ramps up, how corporates hedge their exposure to natural gas prices, and the outlook for corporate buying of renewables. We also discuss why casinos like MGM thought it was worth paying an $87 million exit fee to a Nevada utility in order to give them the freedom to buy renewables instead of coal-fired grid power, and how that may lead to Nevada becoming the first state to deregulate its electricity industry in over a decade. And then in the news segment, we'll look at the ever-worsening outlook for India's coal power sector, the shocking capitulation of economist William Nordhaus on climate change costs and cost-benefit analyses, and some exciting deployments of battery storage systems at scale in California and Hawaii. We cover all these arcane yet important topics and more in this wonkalicious episode, guaranteed to keep CFOs and comptrollers alike on the edge of their seats, starting with Aaron Craig. So let's bring her into the conversation now. Welcome, Erin, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So your work at Origin Climate is largely oriented around helping corporations figure out how to buy renewable energy to power their operations. And it seems that corporate procurement is really the new hotness in renewable energy now. Google made headlines back in December when it announced that it expects to reach 100% renewable power sometime this year for both its data centers and its offices globally. Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Walmart, Dow Chemical, Apple Computer, lots of other companies in the Fortune 500 are actually buying significant portions of their electricity from solar and wind farms now. And according to RMI's Business Renewable Center, nearly two-thirds of the Fortune 100 and nearly half of the Fortune 500 companies have set ambitious renewable energy or related sustainability targets. So let's start with the basics here. What's in it for these Fortune 500 companies? Why would they do this when they can just buy local grid power wherever they are? Right. So their goal doesn't have to do with making sure that they have electricity. So as you've said, this is not a reliability play or anything about the electrons. This is really for these companies, it is part and parcel of 
what they are coming to see is their responsibility in the large as a corporation. And as we'll talk about, there's lots of other things that play into it. And there's no one single motivating factor that all of the companies would put at the top of their list. But certainly among them is a real desire to act in a manner that is more sustainable than they had in the past. And, you know, there's competitiveness, like with each other, that comes in and certainly the importance of electricity in particular in its impacts on climate change plays a big role. But really, just like companies are coming out and taking stands on whether it's immigration or LGBT rights or, you know, all other kinds of things that might not be seen as central to their business, climate change is one of those. And this is one of the things these companies are doing to try to mitigate their impact. Okay, so it's very much about being a good corporate citizen, responding to the climate change challenge, corporate image, that kind of thing. I have to assume there's also a lot more to it, which we'll get into here in a minute. But, you know, it struck me, and I guess this is actually prompted by something that you said earlier when we were kind of prepping for the show, that this is not really a new idea, that in the past, a lot of hydro dams, for example, were built to power aluminum smelters because they require very large amounts of power. And even coal power plants were built to support steel foundries, were they not? That's absolutely right. You know, decades and decades ago, it was more the availability and the guaranteed reliability of power that you fly over the country and you still see now um, giant industrial facilities that, oh, look, there's a coal plant right next door and there's no coincidence. And some of the dams up and down the eastern seaboard, you know, just series and series of dams were built to support aluminum smelters and other kinds of high demand facilities. And at that time, certainly not a coal plant, but not hydro plants either. They weren't being built for any reason having to do with sustainability, but really it's access to that amount of power. And you can think of, in particular, the tech industry, but other high demand users today as well as kind of the new industrialists in that way, right? You know, this is their their inputs of production. And so they're doing what they can, not only to make sure that they have them available to them, which is less a problem now than it was before, but that they also meet their requirements. And the sustainability of the supply from an environmental standpoint is part of those requirements. The cost is another part, which of course is part of the equation here too. Yeah, yeah. I want to spend the majority of this discussion talking about different ways that corporates can buy renewable power. But first, I want to clarify some terminology. So your company helps to create a market in carbon credits. Are carbon credits the same thing as renewable energy certificates, or or are there some important differences there? Yeah, so there are some important differences. Let me start with renewable energy credits, or RECs. That's a term of art that is more or less American, just to be clear. Uh, Renewable energy credit is a, a right to talk about an electron as being generated by a renewable power source. And that right is, you know, it's imaginary in many ways, right? It was created because people decided it was important and it has nothing to do with the electricity and its function, but it has to do with being able to talk about and to claim and to account for a certain electron as being renewable and having some responsibility for that renewable generation. So that's a renewable energy credit. It's a traceable attribute of electricity that says it was generated from renewable power source. A carbon credit, a carbon credit is a reduction or a change in the greenhouse gas emissions that comes from someone deciding what a baseline practice is, intervening in the baseline practice in such a way that emissions are reduced and counting them up and taking every ton of those emissions 
avoided or emissions reduced and calling that a credit. And so they have, you know, as I've explained them, I don't even think I used any of the same words in either one, but carbon credits have an implication built into them that they wouldn't have happened in the normal business as usual case. Renewable energy certificates do not have that implication. So, you know, many renewable energy certificates come from resources that have been around a long time and they don't have any implication about what would have happened or should have happened in some other case. It's just that it comes from renewable energy. Gotcha. So one of the ways to generate carbon credits is with renewable energy projects, right? Because a renewable energy project can be one of those ways that you intervene into the baseline case and say, I'm going to build myself a renewable project and I'm going to count up how much greenhouse gas emissions I'm backing off in my grid. And those credits, that that quantity of greenhouse gas emissions would otherwise have been emitted. I'm going to count those up and call them carbon credits. And there are, in the U.S. and elsewhere, there are renewable energy projects that generate carbon credits. Those projects do not generate renewable energy credits, you know, because the right to claim it as renewable has been sucked up into the carbon credit. So there are times when the credits are overlapping. You have to choose one or the other, but you can get carbon credits from all kinds of things that have nothing to do with energy. Interesting. Okay. You know, I don't think I ever really knew that distinction before, so that's helpful. So then your company actually creates a market in carbon credits. Yeah, that's one of our businesses to originate carbon credits. And we do that with dairy farms and some industrial digesters and other sorts of methane generating resources primarily. The business that I run and the work that I do with corporations is separate from that. And it's our consulting business where we help companies with renewable energy. Okay. You know, there was a nexus between the two, which is how our renewable energy consulting business got started, which is that a lot of our methane projects are dairy farms and they have digesters that generate electricity. And our dairy farms sell some of that electricity, you know, some of it they use behind the meter, but some of it they sell to the grid. And they were getting you know, terrible prices for their electricity. And we, at the same time, were selling carbon credits and renewable energy credits to lots of corporations. And we knew that something as charismatic and as important as these dairy farm digesters, which they were kind of on the bleeding edge of dairy farm technology, which is an ironic thing to say, but they are. And so we were just sort of astounded that there was this market failure that wasn't connecting these corporations that wanted to have a role in environmental stewardship and these dairy farms who were trying to actually do that and couldn't get connected with the corporations that wanted to help make those things happen. Wow. So we started to do some renewable energy work with our corporate customers to try to make that happen for them. So your corporate customers may be buying actual renewable energy that they're helping to originate in one fashion or another, or they simply may be buying the carbon credits that are being generated by a facility like this dairy farm, or maybe both. Yeah, I mean, it started exactly that way. As it has evolved, we have the two sets of customers are almost entirely distinct, which is to say we have a group of customers who buy carbon credits from us, and we have another group of customers for whom we help purchase large quantities of renewable energy. And although we thought there was going to be a big overlap in our business over time, as it turns out, there isn't. And the vast majority of our carbon customers are entirely different from the customers who we help with renewable energy. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Can you characterize like why a company would fall into one camp or another? Well, 
So first of all, the population of companies that want to buy renewable energy is much larger, at least here in the U.S., right? Companies that are interested in purchasing or increasing their purchasing of renewable energy, it's been certainly growing a lot over the past few years. But even before that, you know, the participation in utility green power programs and other sorts of renewable energy opportunities was much more broadly utilized than in the U.S., the purchase of carbon credits. So on the one hand, we just have a much, much larger population. And on the other hand, we have some very steady, very large buyers that we work with. Some of those buyers of carbon credits actually also buy renewable energy. We just don't happen to consult with them on it. Hmm. Again, this is sort of ironic being an American and I work a fair amount in Europe, but for a good period of time, and maybe we're entering into another one now, you know, climate change was like people had an allergic reaction to those words and to having their company associated with action on climate change. And it just was not in fashion. And so at that time, many companies adopt renewable energy goals because that's a no regrets kind of goal. It doesn't make a political statement to adopt a renewable energy goal in the same way that it does a climate change goal, or I guess I should say the same way it did. So we certainly have a large population of companies in the U.S. that are establishing renewable energy goals, as you mentioned, and underneath it, of course, it's about climate change, but that's not what their goal says. And so for those companies, right, renewable energy is what they do. It's really the companies that are focused on climate in a larger way that buy carbon credits. Interesting. So at least in their minds, there's an important difference in the kind of image that the company is projecting, depending on whether it's just buying renewable energy or actually buying carbon credits. Yeah, I think that's right. Huh. Interesting. So let's talk about the way that these companies actually buy this power. I mean, obviously, it's impractical for these large corporations to actually install enough wind and solar capacity on their own campuses to provide all their power. So they have to buy it from somewhere. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. In what should be a familiar refrain to regular listeners of this show, the outlook for Indian coal consumption has turned even worse than it already was. An unreleased report from Coal India, the world's largest coal producer, says that coal demand from Indian power plants actually fell 3.7% per year in mid-2016 and paints a bleak future for coal use in India, citing the increased cost of extraction, flattening thermal power demand, and the growing viability of renewable energy sources such as solar. So, I know it feels a bit early and overly optimistic to say this now, but I'm saying it. Coal is done. Item 2. 
and a timely follow-up to episode 35, in which we discussed appropriate discount rates for climate change mitigation measures, and the famous debate about that between Lord Nicholas Stern and William Nordhaus, both respected economists. Nordhaus has essentially thrown in the towel with a new study, which finds that the world isn't taking action on climate change nearly quickly enough to prevent temperatures from rising more than the two degrees. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network. <laughs>